BridgeBank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to those committed to leveraging innovation to make the world a better place. BridgeBank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. BridgeBank. Be bold. Venture wisely. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQED in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. In the 1950s, San Francisco's Fillmore District was known as the Harlem of the West. Margaret Wilkerson Sexton captures the neighborhood zeitgeist in her new novel, On the Rooftop, which tells the story of a single mother trying to help her talented daughters make it in the music business when they have different visions for their lives. We'll talk to Sexton about rejecting parents' dreams, about ambition and optimism, all in the face of a gentrifying Fillmore and the threat of displacement. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. A tisket, a tasket, a brown and yellow basket. I send a letter to my mommy on the that's Ella Fitzgerald's A Tisket, A Tasket, a song one of the characters hums throughout Margaret Wilkerson Sexton's new book, On the Rooftop. It's a story set in San Francisco's Fillmore District in the 1950s, when jazz poured from places like the Champagne Supper Club and Bop City, even as the forces of urban renewal began to displace the neighborhood's black residents. It's here where we meet Vivian, a single mother of three talented daughters who allow Vivian to dream big for what their lives could be. But the girls don't exactly share their mother's vision. Joining me now is writer Margaret Wilkerson Sexton. Welcome to Forum. Thank you. It's so good to be here. Oh, it's so great to have you. Tell us more of the story and more about the ambitious and complicated Vivian. Right. I, I love listening to Ella Fitzgerald, by the I way, know. to orient me before I start. Um, they, yeah, thank you for playing that. And, um, and thank you for having me. So Vivian moves from Louisiana um, before World War II. And she's escaping. She's moving to San Francisco Fillmore. And she's um, moving in order to escape the racial oppression of the South, particularly her father's death at the hands of a Klansman. And um, 
she arrives and she's and she marries her husband and she has her girls and shortly after her husband dies suddenly and the ambition regarding the girls is is really an attempt to find security in the face of that sudden loss of her husband and in the face of the violence that she escaped um, in Louisiana. It's just a way for her. She's flailing and she pours everything she has into her daughters in the hopes that they can bring some kind of sturdiness back to her life. Yeah. You've talked about how Fiddler on the Roof was a source of inspiration for this book. How so? Well, my mom, um, she (laughs) was... When I was growing up, I could only watch movies that didn't have any kind of... Uh, they had to be PG or PG-13, and they couldn't have any kind of sex. And <laughs> violence was perfectly fine, but sex was completely <laughs> out of the question. So I'd be, the you know, the five-year-old watching Terminator. But otherwise, you know, it was very... It, everything had to be very kosher. And um, one of the examples of that was Fiddler on the Roof. So... Um, she would play that VHS every weekend. And I grew up listening to the songs and grew up, you know, reciting the um, the, the lines from Fiddler on the Roof. And my mom in maybe 2007, she came to me. She always has these brilliant ideas. And she came to me in about 2007 and she said, you know, you should write a book based on Fiddler on the Roof. And it should be from a black woman's perspective. And um, the black woman would be from New Orleans, which is where we're from. And the black woman would have five daughters, and um, the parallel displacement to Fiddler on the Roof would be Hurricane Katrina. And the climactic scene at the end would be the main character and her daughter standing on the rooftops of their own homes holding signs saying, help me, you know, the images that we were flooded with um, during Hurricane Katrina. And I thought that was a brilliant idea. I still do. And it always gives me chills when I talk about it. But I had written two other books, and um, the first one, A Kind of Freedom, dealt with Hurricane Katrina to the extent that I was comfortable dealing with it. And um, I felt I had sort of mined what I could from that subject matter. And we've had such beautiful um, tributes to Katrina in, you know, The Yellow House by Sarah Broom and in Jasmine Ward's uh, Salvage the Bones. And um, I just thought, you know, that's not the material I want to focus on for this particular book. So I actually was considering making up a parallel displacement. Like one specific example was this commune I had thought about creating. It would be like a post-Civil War commune that had somehow um, remained uninfiltrated from any other culture. It would be all black. And then um, during the time that the book would be set, you know, some other culture would be trying to insert itself into this group. And um, it became just way more of an anthropological exercise that I felt was, you know, within my lane. (laughs) And so um, I thought surely there have been real examples of displacement that I can point to in history. And so I started researching it. I actually had never heard of of urban renewal, but um, I started researching it and I realized that it had taken place, you know, in this jazz era in the Fillmore when so many black people from Louisiana had migrated here with the hopes of some kind of reprieve, relative reprieve from racism. And once I got all those like fundamental components of the story, it became really clear that that's what I should focus on. I, I felt like I could really, um, I could access the musical component of Fiddler on the Roof through the jazz. And um, I felt like I could keep the joy and the optimism of that musical, you know, of course, in the face of unspeakable tragedy in that in that musical. But I felt I could I could really access and maintain that level of joy and endurance because um, because so much of the community's lives in the Fillmore was that it was, you know, maintaining an optimism despite what was surrounding them. Yeah. So you really did end up staying true to your mom's idea 
of of something with the echoes of Fiddler on the Roof, but really making it your own. I, I am curious in thinking about your mom giving you a great writing idea how much of your own mom is reflected in Vivian, <laughs> for example? That's a good question. Um, and I don't, I, luckily my mom's not listening, so I can be transparent. Um, she is, she's, she's a fierce mother, you know, very exacting. I have one brother and she's been, she's the same with both of us. You know, she kind of, she, she figures out what our, what our callings are. You know, she thinks she figures it out. And once she figures that out, it's on, you know, the sky's the limit. And she's, I mean, it's funny as I say that it's so clear that she's the that she's the basis for this character of Vivian but I I promise you when I was writing it I didn't know that. I was it was all unconscious and it wasn't until I gave the book to my husband and he made a comment about it about the the similarities that I started to see it. But um yeah, I mean she this is an example she she always believed I would be a writer since I was like mm-hmm. 13 or something. And I ended up going to law school after college. And my mother wept when I told her I was going, which is so funny, right? And because most people, you know, they want their their children to be lawyers or whatever. And um, my mother was in the background weeping. Mm-hmm. And um, and she said, you'll regret it. You know, that's not what you're supposed to be doing. You're supposed to be a writer. And, and she would, even as I was like in law school and working at a law firm, she would call all the time and just ask, well, how's the book going? And I'd be like, well, there is no book, <laughs> you know. <laughs> if by book you mean legal memo. <laughs> but um, but no, she just she never gave up on it, and and so much of that is present in Vivian the wow. the the just persistence and the sheer determination, and also what I love about Vivian is that she's like one conversation away from being a little bit unhinged, and <laughs> and you know it, it, you kind of wonder like when as the daughters continue to disappoint her, like when she's gonna really just go off the edge, but my mother. Like Vivian, um, they're both able. You know, they can dial it back. I feel like I feel like my mother's been really good about, for instance, when I was a lawyer, just just like waiting in the on the sidelines, waiting for me to come back to myself. And I see that in Vivian too, Mm -hmm. like a willingness to just relent at a certain point, at least to just relent, um, to to just you know relinquish her dream and submit to whatever the daughters feel that is right for them. Did you know when you were writing? or before you started writing, that what would be driving Vivian's desire for her daughters to have success in singing was a need for security? Or did that emerge as you wrote it? That's a really good question. Um, I think so. I think I did always know that, that under the surface, it wouldn't really be about the, the, you know, I think there's a line even in the book where she's like, you know, at some, at some level, she knew it wasn't about the limos. It wasn't about the fancy cars. It wasn't about the furs. Um, It was about, um, it was about, you know, them finding that calling. But I think, I don't think she would say, I don't think she would be aware that it was even deeper than that. Um, I think it was, I think it was a way for her as a black woman during that time, I think about the ways in which she would have been able to control her own life and to control the destinies of her daughters. And she was so limited relatively in that respect. Mm. And I think um, I think it was a way for her to to create this um, sort of like fictional sense of control. And because, of course, it doesn't work. But 
I think it was a way for her to feel like, you know, there were so few options for them at that time. And I think it was a way for her to feel like she could shield them from whatever was coming and and certainly from, you know, from what had come for herself. Yeah. When you think about your own mom's dreams for you to be a writer or to be who she saw you as, what do you think was the underlying drive? Oh, that's such a good question. Huh, that's such a good question. I I think that it's hard to know because she's not, you know, she's never satisfied. So, um, and I mean that in the most respectful way, but um, this... <laughs> When I um, was talking to her a few weeks ago, we were talking about this book on the rooftop. It hadn't even been released yet. Of course, it came out on September 6th. And she was asking me um, if I was, if I, you know, how I was doing. And I said, oh, my gosh, you know, I'm so busy preparing for this book. And she said, which book, the old one or the new one? When she said the old one, she actually meant on the rooftop. The huh. book had not been released yet. <laughs> oh my God. But in her mind, it's the old one because it's been written and it's time to move on. Um, and to, to the next one, and she's always been like that. I don't. I I think you know my mom grew up in you know she's she's uh, younger than Vivian would have been, but my mom was born in the fifties in New Orleans, and um, you know born into Jim Crow South and everything that that entailed. And and I wonder if it's the same for my mother. I wonder if she's trying to, you know, unbeknownst to her, I wonder. I wonder if she's trying to create a sense of security although ostensibly she has one you know my mother's a lawyer and um and she does well but I wonder if that if that need that young need to feel safe just never really goes away when it's been created out of a out of a of a scene of such trauma and tragedy which you know was was certainly the case at that time for her yeah we're talking with Margaret Wilkerson Sexton author writer new novel is on the rooftop. You probably know Margaret Wilkerson Stexon for her previous book, The Revisioners, which won the NAACP Image Award. Listeners, we want to ask you about the themes of On the Rooftop. Have you rejected a parent's dream for you? Has a child rejected your dreams or goals for them? You can email forum at kqed.org, call us at 866-733-6786, post your thoughts on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram at KQED Forum, or just if you want to talk with Margaret Wilkerson Sexton, join us. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. I come 
listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim, and you're listening to I Cover the Waterfront by Billie Holiday. It's a song that plays during a pivotal moment in the book On the Rooftop, a book written by my guest, Margaret Wilkerson Sexton. And uh, you, our listeners, can also join us. You can share your thoughts on jazz San Francisco in the 1950s, which was the jazz era, but also what we were talking about before the break about parents' dreams for their kids, if you ever rejected a parent's dream for you, or if you ever had a child or a loved one reject your dreams or goals for them, you can share them by calling 866-733-6786, by emailing forum at kqed.org, or finding us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Margaret, there is such a beautiful scene in this book, and I don't know if it's the one that you want to read for sure, but... uh, that that relates to the song, but I would love just to have you read a little bit from On the Rooftop for us, if you wouldn't mind, and if, if you want to set up whatever scene you're about to read for us, that would be great, too. No, I would love to read that scene. Um, that's actually the scene that I choose to read from so far all the time. Oh. Yeah, it's, I love that Billie Holiday's in the background while she's trying to make this decision. Um, so Vivian has been um, approached by a talent manager very early in the book and it's everything she's been waiting on everything she's been praying for and yet as she's sitting down talking to the manager and she's hearing about the prospect of the girls leaving she it it occurs to her that they will be leaving and that she'll no longer be the one at the helm of all of this and she'll have to surrender and there's a moment where she doesn't know if that's quite the path she wants to take and so um, here she has decided that she will accept the deal And um, I'll read from that section now. A lady usher at the church who cooked for Lena's barbecue restaurant accepted the hand of Deacon Washington, and they came together so tight there was no room for Jesus, but everyone was too mirthful to care, and the likelihood was it wouldn't get carried back to Shiloh the next day. And then a John took a lady of the night, and then a man took his own wife, and then a different man took a different man's wife, And the whites didn't know the moves, but they switched their hips to a distinct pulse of their own, and the chorus girls who had been on stage earlier jumped back on and sang. And then the trumpeters switched the tempo, and they weren't playing anything any of them knew. Now it was the saxophonist meeting eyes with the pianist and the drummer nodding back at the clarinet, and it was Vivian too, and not just her but all of them, the collective soul of the place, the news Vivian had shared, the John's hopes, the wives' fears, all melding into one frequency. It was driving the sound, which was also in their bones, and without realizing it, they were all kicking their feet out at the same rhythm, snapping their bodies into their partners, and back out again onto the floor, swerving and hopping and floating, really, and the joy of having formed something streamed through Vivian, lit her up, made her feel like she was shining, and she had had that feeling before, when she was married, quick and simple as it was, and when she'd borne each of the girls, of course, She had slipped above the ordinary world for a moment, and then the most recent time. She was at Jack's in the front row, watching her baby sweep a room up into their command, and she'd gone silent for some time, staring, in awe. And here it was again. She could sell this moment she knew. People would pay everything for it. She would herself if she could learn to carry it beyond these walls. But for now it was free, even to the whites who ventured down to the Fillmore for the barbecue and the blues, and who today, for the first time, had lingered. That's Margaret Wilkerson Sexton reading from On the Rooftop. And uh, let me go to a call. Let's go to Heidi in Palo Alto. Hi, Heidi. Oh, 
I think we just lost Heidi. <laughs> Let's see if she calls back. That scene is at the Champagne Supper Club, and that was a real place that was here when uh, when it was the jazz era of the 1950s Fillmore. Can you talk a little bit about that time, about what it was like in the Fillmore in those days? Yeah, yeah this, was, this was really what spoke to me when I was trying to figure out what the parallel displacement would be and what the setting would be that would spur that. And um, I, I read this book, which I relied pretty heavily on, at least in the beginning, for the idea Harlem of the West by Elizabeth Pepin Silva and Lewis Watts. And um, they they just talked about all of the clubs and they described them in such detail. And at that time, you know, the, the black community that was there had come over from the South and they had carried with them all their dreams for this relative reprieve from racism and also all their hopes and their optimism. You know, uh, they, they had jobs because of World War II and there was money in their pockets and they had found they had found these new people to bond with. And even though they were away, so far away from where they were from, they recreated that community from Louisiana. They recreated it in their church. They recreated it in their music and in their food. And in a way, it felt as if they had carried home to the best possible place. You know, it was this, it was this idealized version of home that I don't even think they could have imagined. So the mood was just so very optimistic. Mm-hmm. And um, and they would go to these clubs at night and everyone knew everyone. And, you know, there would be professional performers there, too. And sometimes these acts would come in after playing at white clubs. They would come in and really let loose in these black communities and the clubs there. And it would be a surprise. You wouldn't know who would come in. So there was all this excitement burgeoning every night. And then, you know, there would also be amateurs playing along with the professionals. And then after the clubs, they would go to these after parties and in people's homes and Vivian, in fact, throws these after parties every Friday in her own basement, and the girls perform there, Vivian's daughters. So it's just this um, it's just this overwhelming sense of joy in this scene and in this in this setting. And that's really what I wanted to focus on for this book in particular, um, especially relative to my other two books, which were a little bit more, um, I don't want to say serious, but I was addressing societal ills in those books as well with more of an emphasis on the ills as opposed to an emphasis on the joy that preceded it and that came out of it, that endured despite it. And um, so just just being able to feel the energy of these clubs and this nightlife and this optimism and this tight-knit community, um, it really, like— it really carried me when I was writing this work. It, it almost like infused itself into me. And mm-hmm. it was my intention to transfer that energy and that frequency to anybody who would read it, um, especially because I wrote it during the pandemic. And yes. I think we needed it. Well, you did. You did infuse that. Uh, the detail, the scene, the imagery, it really did do that. And I am struck by how you say you wanted to focus more on the joy and optimism and that you wrote it during the pandemic. So so talk about the role the pandemic played in that, if it did play a strong role. Oh, yeah, I think it was huge. Um, you know, I started, my, my second book came out in November 2019, which I can't believe that. When I think about it, it was only four months before the pandemic started. It actually, to me, felt like there was more time between those two events. Um, so I really wasn't writing, you know, for those few months when I was promoting The Revisioners. And then I started in about April 2020 to write again. And, and, you know, the pandemic had just started. We were on lockdown. 
Um, my husband and I were teaching the children through distance learning. You know, their their teachers were teaching through distance learning, but as everyone who's a parent knows, you know, the, the parents were really the teachers at that time. And um, as privileged as we were, I don't want to complain, you know, relatively, we, we, you know, we skated through it, but it was a, it was a really, really difficult time in my house. You know, um, I have, I have twins and uh, their learning styles are so very different from each other. So just, just trying to accommodate both of them when they were also experiencing so much anxiety and, and, and pain from having to leave school, it was, it was a lot. And so, um, I would go into my little space, my little safe space to write, you know, for a few hours a day. And I remember at that time I was trying to write five pages a day. And, and that's typically a routine I like to do when I when I am writing. And I would go into that space and it felt like I needed an antidote to what I was actually experiencing in, in my real life and in the real world, what we were all experiencing. Yeah. And... Um, you know, actually, I was reading at that. T- well, so so a few months into that, The Vanishing Half came out by Britt Bennett and mm. I was reading it and it felt like this was at the height of of the despair for me, you know, pandemic related despair. And as I was reading it, it felt like I had these friends in this novel who were helping support me through my own suffering, like. I could feel their suffering so intensely through the way that that Britt Bennett conveyed it. I could feel it so intensely. It felt like, you know, oh, well, well, they're suffering and their suffering is so palpable and I'm suffering. It felt like it helped me manage it to know that it was a collective thing. And of course, these are fictional characters. You know, they're not real. <laughs> so I was like, I think I want to do that more. I don't think I'm doing that enough. Like I, 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 I thought, you know, my books have and and I do. I think I always have done a. A, you know, relatively decent job of conveying emotions. I do think that's a strength, but I, I think I realized I could go even deeper than I was going into my characters and I could get even more intimate with them. And and I wanted to do that as a way to kind of soothe whoever needed it when they were reading. I wanted them to, to be so um, aligned with the suffering of the characters they were reading that they could kind of forget about their own or also maybe just like even keep in mind that they were suffering too, but realize that it was just a, a life thing and that it was a collective thing and maybe not have it hit in such a distinct and personal way. Um, and so I, that, I, that's, that's how the pandemic um, factored in. It was, it was the pandemic and the pain of it, but also just having an example through that book I mentioned, through The Vanishing Half, having that example of, of how to help people through that, through writing. We're talking with Margaret Wilkerson Sexton about her new book, On the Rooftop, and you, our listeners, can tell us what you want to ask Margaret Wilkerson Sexton, or maybe some of the themes are bringing up things for you, like parents' dreams for you or children's dreams that uh, may not be your dreams, and how how you manage that. Maybe it's bringing up memories of the Fillmore um, when it was the Harlem of the West, you can share them by calling 866-733-6786. And I believe we do have Heidi back. Heidi from Palo Alto. Hi. Hi. First of all, I want to thank your guest. Um, just listening to the snippets of your book and your discussions of bringing back the Fillmore of the 50s. I was pretty young then, but I still do remember hearing so much about the fantastic clubs and music that was happening there. But I also can relate to the character of having someone whose parent wants one thing when they're just naturally drawn to something else. My father, who was bipolar, 
most of his mania during uh, my childhood and adolescence were focused on me becoming a professional cellist. Wow. The only problem was it was not something I ever wanted to do. And in his mania, he was just not aware of either my lack of interest or lack of talent. And, you know, today I'm a librarian because that was where I thought my passion was in books and literature. And I am so eager to read your book, which I think will open up so many doors for myself, both in terms of what you're writing about and recreating that extraordinary period of the San Francisco Renaissance in in Fillmore. So thank you so much. Thank you. And I I love that because so many people don't don't figure out what it is they want to do and don't venture into that space or or maybe when they do they feel it's when they do figure it out maybe it's too late I love that you were able to find your own passion I was very lucky and unfortunately it was due to sad circumstances that I was finally liberated to do what I want to do but I do believe ultimately if you find your passion go for it and don't stop Heidi, thank thanks. you again so much. Well, thank, thank you, Heidi, for sharing that. Thank okay. you. And uh, when she's describing Heidi, her own dad, not that Vivian has mania per se, mm-hmm. but she certainly does have her blind spot. <laughs> she does. <laughs> her daughter. She does. She does. And um, one scene that I love that I thought was really telling and that also sort of surprised me, and I, I won't, I'll try not to give anything away, but when she does have her own, you know, personal romance, when that starts to flourish a little bit more and she's just able to enter into her own life, you see some of that resistance to her daughter's independence. You see some of that fall away. And I I, I wasn't expecting that. There are so many surprises in the book for me, as even as the author, but mm. I really wasn't expecting that one. And it, it also, it almost like explained to me what was going on with her. Like, I think she was just so afraid of, of, of entering her own life again after losing her husband. And mm-hmm. so I think everything just, she just poured everything into those girls, you know, and, and just couldn't even consider herself. And I think um, once she started to be able to create space for her for, to, to, to just kind of think about what she wanted and um, and to actually entertain what she wanted, um, it, it just seemed to matter less if her daughters followed her dreams for them or not. Right, right. I'm struck by hearing you talk about how you you really kind of leaned into or stretched yourself uh, with regard to delving into their emotions and creating this emotional intimacy so that we as the reader could feel really connected to the characters themselves. I had also read that you stretched yourself even to cover deeply San Francisco and the Fillmore. You you lived in the Bay Area for more than 15 years, right, Margaret? Yeah, I moved here in 2006. So why did it feel like you were stretching yourself to tell this story? Yeah. Or set it here? That's yeah. a really good question. I think I err a little bit too much on the side of staying in my lane. And, um, you know, I my first book, which was never published, was supposed to be set in the Dominican Republic. And um, I, I lived there for a year, but that was it. And, um, and I just, I, I, I worked on that book for years, almost 10 years, and I never could quite feel the authority around retelling that story. 
um, around telling that story. And I and I think I think in that case that was valid. I don't think I had spent enough time there, and I don't think it was my story to tell. Um, although I was doing it from the perspective of an American. But in this case, I do think I, I aired a little bit too much on the side of of um, of respecting the fact that I wasn't from here originally. And I think I've just become so very comfortable writing about New Orleans. And, you know, it's funny because I I lived in New Orleans exclusively until I was 12. And then my mom moved to Connecticut and my dad stayed in New Orleans. And um, so I I was kind of back and forth. I it so, you know, it's funny, I left New Orleans at 12, but it was because I was there for those early formative years. It's it's like ingrained in me. Mm-hmm. And I I just feel so very comfortable writing about that city, even though I really have rarely experienced it. I certainly have never experienced it as a resident, as an adult. You know, I go back all the time, but I, I've, n- I've not been a resident there in so long. But I think it just it's soothing to me because I know it. I, I know it from this very early, young and like confident space. You know, it takes up so much real estate in my own mind and in my own heart. So I think I was just like, can I even can I even tell a story written in another place? Like, I don't it's not even that I don't know so much about it because, you know, I write historical fiction. I wasn't actually in New Orleans in 1944. So like I'm doing research on all this stuff anyway. Like, what's the difference? Right. But it it just felt like, mm, you know, like San Francisco's not really in my spirit as much as that mm-hmm. place is. But I what I what I appreciated about it was that Vivian is not from here either. And so I felt like I felt like I had the authority to tell a transplant story. And um, we sort of have the same lens. You know, she moved here. I moved here. She carried Louisiana with her, as did I. Yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense. I imagine you must feel a lot more connected and authoritative now after you've written this book. The book is on the rooftop, and we'll have more with Margaret Wilkerson Sexton after the break. Stay with us. This is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Straighten up and fly right. Straighten up and stay right. Straighten up and fly right Cool down, Papa, don't you blow your top Fly right Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Every time it rains, I think of you, and that's the time I feel so blue. 
Welcome back to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. We're talking this hour with Margaret Wilkerson Sexton about her new novel, On the Rooftop. We're talking about jazz, parents' dreams for their children, ambition and optimism. We're also talking about displacement and threats to, to happiness and to place and to bonds. All of this is part of Margaret Wilkerson Sexton's new book. And you, our listeners, have been writing in your comments. Let me get to those right now. This is writes, It's great to hear that the author's mom was so supportive of her career as a writer. Has that influenced how she parents her own children and fosters their interests and dreams? <laughs> I think so. I, I don't think I have as many blind spots as Vivian, but of course I would have no clue about them. So I'm not quite positive, but... Um, you know, my own son, he, one of them, I have two sons and a daughter, and one of my sons is actually, he writes every night. He has these journals that he writes in, and he writes these stories. He has like 36 books in a series. And I'm trying to just be appropriate about it. I'm just like, you know, I'm encouraging him, and I'm so proud of him about it. And um, and I try to just leave it there. You know, I'm not like, I don't have any opinions except to give him praise, and I don't have any commentary. I just want him to keep that joyful energy around it because it gives him joy. And when it stops bringing him joy, if that ever happens, I want him to to do something else. Like I don't have a I don't have an investment in it, and I feel that way about all the children. Of course, I have to say now my children are nine. The twins are nine, and the the baby is five. So I wonder if that will you know I wonder if I'll find that approach to be more challenging as they get older. Yeah. Well, another listener writes, the guest talks about not feeling she might have the authority to write about San Francisco. How does the author feel about who should or can tell certain stories? I wonder about this with historical fiction. I know. We we talk about this in my MFA program a lot um, with my students. Um, and it's such a good question. I I, I actually think everyone should be able to tell whatever story they want to tell. I think I think there are some questions that they have to ask themselves before they, and I do the same with, with my own work, before they delve into those projects. You know, um, I, I think there should be a healthy examination of the intention behind the desire to write from certain perspectives. Um and I'll say for, for myself, you know, I, I felt like this was a story that needed to be told. I didn't even know about this urban renewal program. I didn't know that this community or this setting was called the Harlem of the West. I didn't know how much was lost. And um, I felt like because I've been here enough and because I'm also from Louisiana um, and also because I, I, I do research, you know, I'm, I'm pretty good about doing research. I felt like, okay, I can tell this story without, without hopefully without detracting from its richness and its authenticity. Um, yeah. I felt that I could kind of, I felt that I could hopefully transfer the story without, um, without infiltrating it too much with my own cultural bias or my own, you know, um, lack of information around it. It, what is an example of a question you ask yourself? You're kind of suggesting it, but mm-hmm. I am curious. Um, is there is there someone else who who should tell this story who's not getting the opportunity to tell this story because I'm taking that from them by using by using my voice to tell it? Mm-hmm. And I I didn't feel like you know I I didn't feel like that was necessarily the case because I do have these connections with these communities. You know my own. Right. Um, my grandfather's 
older sister moved here in the 40s from New Orleans. She moved to San Francisco and she worked in San Francisco as a nurse. She had her eight children here and um, they ended up all moving to Vallejo, actually. But they're all they're all still in Vallejo. You know, they have their own descendants. When my great aunt died, she actually had um, 40 living descendants, over 40. And so anyway, I I felt like, you know, I've enough enough of this world overlaps with my own world that I'm not going to be able that I'm not going to necessarily mess it up. And it's not necessarily, you know, usurping it because because it is it it, in some ways it is it it does belong to me in certain ways. Yeah. Let me go to caller Rebecca in Inverness. Hi, Rebecca. Hello. Thank you for taking my call and Miss Sexton. Thank you so much for becoming a writer and oh, and thank you. hearing you this you bet hearing you this morning brings so many things up for me as a woman as a mother of a daughter um, and and son but a lot about being the mother of a daughter being the daughter of a mother who was a daughter of another mother and the kinds of expectations and encouragement that the different generations politically Mm. have been able to offer us each in our generation in different stages of all of our evolution. But I, and I appreciate that. I also appreciate hearing about the Fillmore because my parents were in the Fillmore at the jazz clubs. I was born in the fifties having been in the country, but moving into San Francisco in 1975, there was a job, a job waiting for me on Fillmore Street in between Pine and California at Nate Thurman's soul food restaurant, the beginning. Oh my goodness. I went into, yes, I went into the city to, you know, follow, um, some acting in films or in theater, but ended up becoming a dancer and was common law married to a black man who was a trumpet player and lighting director for a film. And we had our little family and I, I just danced and was part of that community. And I'm just feeling so many memories and they're mm. all good. <laughs> all of this makes me so happy. <laughs> oh, Rebecca, thank it's, you. It you really... know, they're, they're all very rich and um, wonderful memories. And I cannot wait to read your book and anything you ever write. <laughs> thank <laughs> you. And thank you so much for sharing. Yeah, hearing what Rebecca shared makes me feel like all the things that you had set out to do with this book <laughs> you have you have accomplished with uh with Rebecca um, Michael tweets what this story emphasizes for me is that moments in time don't last and that you have mm. to enjoy them while you can it really is this moment just before just before the the displacement happens just before homes people are forced out of the Fillmore or pushed out of the Fillmore as well, right on the edge of this moment when there was so much happening with regard to jazz, the community, you know, businesses, just activity. So it is, it is sort of this incredible feeling of both 
intensity but vulnerability at the same time that you're like straddling right there when you place this in 1950s Fillmore. Right, right. And, um, and you know, it's it, as much as I wanted to focus on the joy and the optimism and all of that, um, it's hard because we know how the story ends. Right. It, you know, factually, we know how the story ends. It's hard not to have, um, you know, the the reception of all of that, all of that joy, you know, not feel bittersweet. Yeah. And you have Esther, the the middle daughter, Vivian's daughters are Ruth, Esther, and Chloe writing protest songs. You sort of weave in uh, that pain and frustration and the incredible structural forces that are there. Though, again, it must have been it must have been such a balancing act throughout the book, or maybe it just came naturally for you to 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 keep that as a part of it while also focused on the joy, as you say. Yeah, I mean, that's a that's a really good question. I actually think, and I real I figured out why this happens a few weeks ago. A, a, a someone in the audience at a reading actually said it, and I thought, oh my gosh, that's what it is. Um, I. I, I love historical fiction because that's frankly how I get ideas. My my little plot, the plot part of my brain is still developing, and so I I use I use what actually happened, you know, in 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 the past to kind of help anchor me when I'm looking for stories. And um, so I, you know, I I have that there, like because I I do want to I do feel one of my callings is to address these social problems in you know both in history and the ones that continue in com- contemporary time, because for the most part we still see remnants of all of this stuff here, um, today, but the part that I really like writing is the the relationships between the family members and mm. the relationships between the sisters specifically, um, the relationships between the mother and the daughter. The romances between the girls and and their love interests, the budding romance between Vivian and Preacher Thomas, without giving anything away, <laughs> and um, that's actually my happy place and my natural place. Like that's where I really, that's where I really enjoy the work. Um, I, I I don't think it's quite enough. I think there, I I do always like to to balance it with something educational, not just for the reader, but for me and something that relates to a problem that I see still in existence, which is gentrification, of course. Um, but it didn't feel like as much of a of an intentional balancing act as you would think because, or even as I would have thought, because um, the, the place where I really like to spend time is in those in in those quiet moments, you know, at the house or in the moments when they're preparing for the after party or in the moments where, you know, Chloe is just eating dinner at her older sister's house because she's just been taking care of her daughter. You know, those are the little moments that I really enjoy. And um, so I, 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 I spend most of my time there and, and then I'm intentional about, you know, um, making sure to, to, to weave in the, the, the history and um and the underlying threats but but i like to spend most of the time on the on the family and that's why and on the people and and that's why i think this is what this woman in the audience said the other day um she said she said she thought that was why the feeling tone of the book is not overwhelmed by what we know is tragically coming yes 
We're talking with Margaret Wilkerson Sexton. The book is On the Rooftop. This is a fundraising period for many public radio stations, and you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Going to your happy place, Margaret, was that something you had to give yourself more permission to do this time around? Yeah, I think so, actually. That's a really good question. I think it was. Um, I, I think that I think that I was unconsciously um, maybe like thinking, equating, equating the quality of the book with the with the intellectualism of the book. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, and, you know, I was just coming off of my legal career and a kind of freedom, I think, is it, that was the first one. I think that's probably the most, you know, serious just in tone. Um, it almost feels like a thesis or something, although it's I mean, I, I don't want to undermine the book. I think it's very emotionally compelling as well. But um, but I think as I've gone, I've just I've just yeah, as you said, I've given myself permission to embrace the softer sides of writing, because the funny thing is, that's my strength. You know, if if you knew me personally, you would know that um, I love to talk about with my friends, you know, whatever emotional problem is afflicting them at the time. That's that it's I don't have a problem with that coming up in the first five minutes of any conversation. That's that actually makes me feel that that excites me because I like to help people emotionally. And even when I was leaving my legal career, I actually thought about going back to school to be a therapist. And so I'm I'm just comfortable in those soft spaces. And I think I think I was maybe afraid to go there, maybe afraid that, you know, it would be considered too light and too um, insubstantial, I guess. And, um, and yet the the more I go there, it feels like, as a reader, I know this already, but but I'm learning it as a writer, you know, the more I go there, that's actually what people connect to. And that's actually why people are reading novels, at least. Well, this listener wants to know what surprised you most when it came to writing about jazz was it hard to describe yes it was so it was so hard to describe um I've actually I've read so many books about um you know one of them for instance is so so you want to sing jazz or so you think you can sing jazz I can't remember the exact title but it's in the acknowledgments and um that was truly a book geared toward jazz singers like helping them figure out how to how to protect their vocal health and, you know, how to project and how to perform. So I had to read a lot of those types of books because Vivian had to be the kind of person who would have been so knowledgeable about training her daughters. And they would have accumulated all of this information. Um, and, and I don't have a musical background at all. So um, mm. I did have to read really as much research as I did on the Fillmore and on, you know, the Urban Renewal Program. I probably did a little bit more on the music. <laughs> So do you feel a deeper connection to jazz after writing? Or have you always had at least somewhat of a deep connection to jazz? Or, or did it really deepen? And if so, how? I think, I yeah, it, it did. Like, just even now in the interludes, listening to the music that you're playing, um, Ella Fitzgerald and Billie Holiday, like, it feels like it hits me in my soul. Like, I feel like, um, I feel more of a personal connection as if almost as if I was actually sitting in the Champagne Supper Club when they were playing. It's really mm-hmm. funny because I wasn't there, of course, I wasn't born, but um but because I wrote the characters who were there, it almost feels like it gave me a false memory. <laughs> and so it, I'm like, "Oh, I remember those days." And it's like, "No, you don't." But 
Well, but yeah, jazz, it's more personal. Yeah, it's also almost a metaphor metaphor in the way that it, it's so it's happy, uh, it's so light and lovely, but at the same time, jazz is sort of tinged with with pain yeah. as well. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, this listener writes, sometimes parenting is so all-encompassing that you forget yourself and what you want for yourself versus what you want for your kids. It's a conundrum that parents, that faces all parents. I can't wait to read Sexton's version of that. We're actually going to go out, uh, Margaret, with the song, Do You Know What It Means mm. to Miss New Orleans or New Orleans, mm-hmm. <laughs> however you want to say it. Mm-hmm. Do you want to say anything about that song? Um, I think it was part of a playlist that yeah. has come to you as you've written this book, too. and. Yeah, I I love, you know, I actually have a personal memory of that song. I I um I presented in high school on Louis Armstrong, on Louis Armstrong and um we, I played that song in the background as I was presenting. And um that song just for me encapsulates my relationship with the city now. Um so much of my relationship with New Orleans was linked with my relationship with my dad. And to the point where when my dad was was still living there, especially when he was sick, I was going like six times a year. And then when he passed, I truly he passed four years ago and I haven't been in three years. And so when I hear this song, I just as as happy as I am to I don't want to live in New Orleans. You know, I don't want to ever move back to New Orleans as much as I love to visit. And as happy as I am in the Bay, whenever I hear this song, I I I I feel the the grief that I've buried from not being in that city any longer. Well, thank you so much for talking with us today. I'm so excited I get to talk to you again, actually, on October 7th here at KQED. I'm so excited for it, too. For Litquake. Yeah, but really a pleasure. Same. Thank you so much for having me. This Hour Form was produced by Caroline Smith. Grace Wan is also a producer. Susan Britton is our lead producer. Susan Davis is our senior producer. Marlena Jackson Rotondo is our engagement producer. Our engineers are Danny Bringer, Katie McMurrin, with help from Chris Hoff. Lulu Ralda and Paul C. Kelly Campos are our interns. Holly Kernan and Ethan Toven Lindsay are our leaders. Have a great weekend. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Heising Simons Foundation, and the Bernard Osher Foundation, supporting higher education and the arts. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all 
all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.